0: Uh, Join me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you're new to the Bible, um, the Gospel of John is in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Uh, The big numbers in your Bible are going to be the chapters. The smaller numbers are going to be the verses. Uh, I want you to follow along. I want you to uh, stay uh, connected to Uh, the Word of God as uh, I aim to communicate the Word of God this morning. So please turn there. Uh, I'm going to read verses 15 through 31. Uh, If you recall last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at the first two verses. uh, Well, actually, the first uh, three, 15, 16, and 17, as we really looked uh, and and focused in on the the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, specifically and some characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And today, I'm going to focus in on 18 through 31 uh, as we continue to look at this magnificent passage. So let me read this for us, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. Uh, Would you hear now the word of the Lord? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Uh, This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you praise and glory. For your kindness, your mercy that has been extended to us. Uh, You have not treated us as we deserve, but you have extended mercy beyond our wild imagination. Uh, We do not deserve the benefits of being called your people, but you have robed us in the righteousness of Christ. So, Father, I pray for this gathering. I pray for this time. Would you illuminate your word for us? Would you bring conviction where needed? And would you comfort those that are afflicted? And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. What a whirlwind of a week we've had. You turn on the news and everywhere you look, there's trials and tribulations, atrocities Uh, that are hard to even imagine for the human mind. On top of that, we all have our own individual struggles that we are all dealing with, right? Like like those things don't just go away when the world is bringing extra on us. We still live in the reality of our current circumstances. I know many of you in here have been struggling with different things and and on, on top of everything else, that you're already dealing with, the the world around us has really brought you discouragement. But brothers and sisters, there is hope. Uh, We looked at this last week. We looked at the the promised presence of Jesus Christ, the the promise that Jesus has given to his people that I, I will not leave you. I am with you through thick and thin. I am going to provide everything you need, no matter what the world throws at you. I mean, what a perfect time to be here in this passage than the time that we're currently in uh, as we watch the world around us crumble. Uh, People are falling apart, right? Uh, They have no idea how to kind of categorize the things that they're seeing because most often they have no hope in God. But here in this passage, as we continue to look at the promised presence of Jesus, we can see that we have hope. I want you to kind of make a connection here from where we are to where the disciples were at their point in their life. They had walked with Jesus for three years. Uh, They had been told their whole lives, the Messiah will come. He's going to come. He's going to just wait. You've got to wait. And then finally, the Messiah is here. And then on this night, in the upper room, he tells them, I'm out. I'm about to leave you. Things are going to be a lot different than you had Experienced up to this point. I mean, Jesus is really preparing them for what's to come. So imagine the confusion. Imagine the emotional roller coaster that these men were, were facing, that they were dealing with. The, the highs, the lows, the confusion, the, the state of confliction, the inner turmoil that they likely felt. I'm sure we can all relate, but in this passage and in this section specifically, we see five distinctions of the promised presence of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus prepares them, and he says in some very distinct ways, this is how I am going to be with you. These are the ways that I am going to provide you everything you need. And brothers and sisters, that is our encouragement today. This is God's word for us. So let's look at this passage and let's look at these five distinctions of the promised presence of Jesus Christ. First, we see here that Jesus promises to appear after his resurrection. We see this here in verses 18 through 20. Look there with me. In verse 18, Jesus speaking says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, let's stop right there and let's look at this. Because we can speculate that after Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, they're probably thinking, that's cool, that's great, but guess what? We want you. <laughs> we want you, Jesus. We, we want to experience the same thing that we've been experiencing for the last three years. We want the person that we have been following. We want some tangible expression that what we have been doing is worthwhile. I mean, we can all relate to that, can't we? Like, we like the tangible. We we like to see what is happening we want to know that it exists and we can really conjecture this speculation because of Jesus's words here I mean Jesus is personal uh, Jesus is saying here I will come to you I mean this is first-person language he's saying I personally will come to you I will be with you I will not leave you As orphans. Now, we all know that an orphan is uh, someone that is a child that is left without uh, parents or a parent, even, but in Greek, in the language that the New Testament was written in, it can also refer to a disciple, uh, which means a follower or uh, someone that's being uh, taught that they are being left without their teacher. So, Jesus is saying here that he will promise his disciples that he will. Personally appear to them. But when is this appearance going to happen that Jesus is speaking of? Well, I believe the appearance that Jesus speaks of here is the appearance after his resurrection. So remember, Jesus is going to the cross. He's preparing them for that. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to come to you. There's, there's going to be something. I will, will not leave you. I will show myself. To you. And I think we can get that out of verses 19 and 20. Look there with me. He says in verse 19, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But what? You will see me. You're going to see me. So after his resurrection, if you recall, uh, Jesus doesn't show himself to the world, right? To, to everyone in the same way that he did before crucifixion. Uh, He didn't show himself in the same way. He actually appeared to what? His disciples, his people. Now there are some people that uh, we see. There's record of uh, folks that were not uh, pre-resurrection Christians that saw Jesus post-resurrection and then became followers of Christ. But in general, Jesus did not appear before the ascension in a specific way to the world. He showed himself to his disciples. He also then goes on and he says, Because I live, you also will live. I believe that this is a direct reference to the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. I believe that he's showing here that he is saying that you're going to see me alive. You're going to tangibly see the living body of Christ. You're going to see me die, and you will see me alive. And because I live, you also will live. You will have confidence. You will be strengthened in your evangelism. And you will believe and understand that no matter what the world may do to you, that you too will have a resurrected body, because I live. I mean, that is the promise of Christ. He goes on in verse 20. He says, in that day, you will know that I am in my father. You will know in that day. There's a day. And you in me and I in you. If you remember, Jesus has just been telling them that, I mean, over and over that he and the father are one. One. Like whatever the Father does, I do, whatever I do, whatever the Father tells me to do, we, we are one, we are united. He he's told them also that the Spirit will be with them. So he, he's talking Trinitarian language here. He's saying that, that we are one. I'm gonna be with you. So Jesus is essentially saying, When you see me, you when you see the power, when you see the validation. In my resurrection, you will know that what I have told you is absolutely true. See, the resurrected Christ is the validation of the words of Christ. It shows that he is who he says he is. And I believe this is what Jesus is explaining to his disciples in these verses. So what does that mean for us? Like, how does that apply to us now in this day? So I want to encourage you, have you think that knowing that the disciples saw his resurrected body should give us confidence, knowing that we will see his resurrected body ourselves. See, in the same way that the disciples were promised the fact, we too can be assured that, listen, if you are a Christian, you will see the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7. He's writing, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he what? He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. So Paul is saying, there's five hundred eyewitnesses here. And, and then he goes on and he says, most of whom are still alive. So essentially saying, go ask them for yourself. And then he says, Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, speaking of himself, he appeared also to me. Now, in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul uh, continues to boldly present his treatise on the resurrected body of Christ and how we, too, will be resurrected. So for Paul and for us. The knowledge, the understanding of the bodily resurrection gave him unwavering confidence to live his life fully committed to Jesus, fully committed to who Jesus Christ is. See, he had the assurance that he too would be made alive. And Christian, if you are here, you can have that assurance. Two, trust God. Trust the word of God. Church, it is imperative. I mean, we must commit ourselves to the same confidence. In all that we do, in all that we see, in, in every circumstance we are put in, we must have the same confidence that these disciples were promised, that Paul then had, that, the, that these disciples are, are shown in the rest of the New Testament. There should be no doubt in our minds. We, we serve, we worship a risen Savior. He is alive, amen? He's alive. See, we're the only people that can say we worship a living God. He is alive. And because of his life, because of his resurrected body, then guess what? If you're a Christian, you too will rise again. Second, we see that Jesus promises a greater knowledge of himself. Promises a greater knowledge of himself. We see this here in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will, look at all the promises just in this passage. It's it's just, it's full of the promises of Christ. He says, I will love him and manifest myself to him. Here again, we see Jesus emphasizing the connection between love and obedience. Now, again, the, the idea is not that uh, Christians somehow initiate love for God out of obedience or initiate a relationship with God out of obedience to God. We, we are initiated by our faith in Christ. Our obedience is a fruit of our love for Jesus. Or another way to say it is our obedience is evidence of our love for Jesus. Uh, The 19th to 20th century expositor, Alexander McLaren once wrote, quote, there are two motives for keeping commandments, speaking of of the commandments of God's word here. One, because they are commanded, and one because we love him who commands. Two different things here. He goes on, he says, the one is slavery, And the other is liberty. It's freedom. The one is like the Arctic regions, cold and barren. The other is like tropical lands full of warmth and sunshine, glorious and glad fertility. End quote. So listen, true Christianity always involves a joyful and willing obedience out of love for Jesus. We love him. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. See, we understand what's been given to us. We understand the love that's been given to us. And in response, we love and we obey the one who's loved us. And here, Jesus promises that those who love him will be loved by both the father and son and will have a greater knowledge. Look at what he says here. He says he will manifest himself to them. Now, I think in in our culture, right, we think of like manifestations as some type of physical presence experience, but that's not what he's saying here. This word actually would mean to uh, explain or bring evidence or inform. So we help to, understand more of who Jesus is. We understand where he manifests himself to us by by how? By the work of the spirit in our lives, opening up our eyes to the the greater knowledge of scripture, the greater understanding of, of who God is. In other words, Jesus is saying those who love me and show their love for me and their obedience will know more of me because they are the ones who will walk more closely with me. Um, I think most of us can say that our times of greatest fellowship with God has been when we are practicing the spiritual discipline of prayer and reading his word, right? I mean, so often, and I've said this before, I'll meet with someone and they're, they're like, I'm just struggling. I'm I don't really feel connected to the Lord. And my first question is always, what does your time in the word look like? What does your time in prayer look like? And more often than not, 99.9% of the time, it is always, it's pretty, pretty scarce. Or it's completely absent. See, if we're not spending time with God, coming to understand who he is, by understanding him through his word, then, friends, we will feel depleted. We will feel disconnected. We will feel as if we don't know him as clearly as we should. In the simplest form, we could say, those who love and obey Jesus are those who know him best. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that would really help to emphasize here the point that we learn more about God, about Jesus, by looking at his word. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every." Work. So, so how do we learn and grow in our knowledge of our Savior by looking to the Word of God, by by allowing the Spirit to communicate to us through the Word, through prayer and communion with the Lord? Now, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest Baptist preachers to ever preach, once said. Quote, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it comes to pass, you can only discover it by his word. End quote. Brothers and sisters, if we are to know Jesus, if we are to, to really grab a hold of this promise, that's given to us here, we must be students of the word. We must be committed to prayer. Whatever you have to do to ensure that this happens for your eternal benefit, I urge you spend time in God's word. Get off of social media, turn off the football game, do whatever you have to do and spend time in God's word. You will get great reward. Third, Jesus promises to use his people to show God's love. He promises to use his people to show God's love. Here we see in verses 22 through 26, but we'll look here at verse 22 first. Uh, Judas, not Iscariot. Uh, this is uh, Thaddeus. Uh, he references Thaddeus in other places of Scripture. Um, but just John wants to make sure that we know this isn't Judas Iscariot. Okay? This isn't the betrayer. It's a different guy. Okay, So he says to him, so he's asking a question. He interjects as Jesus is speaking to the disciples here. And he says in verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? And not the world? Now, we gotta look at this question a little closely here, uh, because he's not really seeking like a descriptive answer. Uh, Think of it more in terms of how can it be that you would manifest yourself to us and not the world? He he can't really grasp this, and, and here's why. See, the disciples, like most Jews of their time, they expected the Messiah to come and just bring the kingdom for all the world to see. Remember, we, we, we saw that over and over in John. They're like, your kingdom now, right? Like, go ahead. We'll follow you as king. Do your thing now. Uh, conquer the world, Jesus. They had a different picture of what the kingdom to come, the, the, the first advent of Christ, would look like. Now, listen. Second Advent, when when Christ returns, we've talked about this before, but it it bears repeating. Christ will return, and he will bring his kingdom. Uh, There there will be no second chance. His kingdom will come to this earth, and all who have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ will face eternal destruction. I, I pray that's not any of you in here today. I pray that you will take this time, the, the grace, the kindness that the Lord has extended to you in this moment even, that you have the opportunity to repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ, to trust him as your savior, to, to follow him as your Lord. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. He is the King of Kings. That, that's one thing I had to reconcile in my mind when I was just running in rebellion to God that he's king. I don't get to rule my little kingdom like I wanted to. Jesus Christ is king. So on the first advent, the first arrival of Christ, the disciples didn't get it. The the Jews didn't quite understand. So they could not comprehend. They they couldn't comprehend this manifestation of Christ that was confined really only to them. And so Jesus answered him. Look at verses 23 through 26. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, verse 26, we talked about this last week. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is repeating the truths that he said in verses 15 and verses 21. There is a direct connection between love in God and obedience to God. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious for us and fair to say that Jesus is not asking us to do something extraordinary. He's asking, he calls his people to humble obedience. Faithful obedience. I mean, he has said this over and over again. And remember when this is. This is right before he goes to the cross. It's right before. And he says that the father and the son, we we will come and make their home with the one that obeys. And this is through what? The the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Listen, God's plan has always been to be with his people. If you think back to the garden uh, before the fall of man, Adam and Eve were with God. The Lord was with them. He dwelt with them. And then what happens? They sin. They, they build a wall of separation. They, they choose to, to rebel against their creator. If you think of Israel, as they wandered the desert, God was with them by way of tabernacle. so things change a little bit. There's some, some difference in the way that, that God is present with his people. Exodus 25, 8. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. If you remember, God made a covenant with Israel, too, that talks about his dwelling with them. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12. I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And then now in the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ came, Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be there. He's going to dwell with his people. He wants to be present with his people. This is what the disciples experienced. Jesus walked with them for three years. He comforted them. He taught them. He counseled. Them. He loved them. He, he helped them. I mean, he, he dwelt with them. Then he dies. He's raised to life, ascends to heaven. Once again, that's what Jesus is preparing them for here. And in this passage, Jesus teaches that believers, even in the ascension, after the ascension, we can have the indwelling presence. Of God through what faith in Christ this means that by trusting Jesus Christ Christians can establish a personal relationship with God allowing them to then feel what the presence of God we get to know God this is a powerful reminder that faith is not just some abstract Concept. It's not just some idea out there. There's a real presence of power through the Holy Spirit that comes within the lives of believers. So I think we too often forget that. We think we're just out here as orphans in this world, just kind of living in a way that we just kind of, you know, hopefully God will show up here. Hopefully, maybe God will, will help me out here. No, God is with you, church. We may not always like the circumstance, but God is always presence. He is always present. He's always working. Sometimes it's for our good to change our wicked hearts. Sanctification. Someone asked me last week, "Well, what does it mean that, you know, like when we look at the Holy Spirit in us and like, okay, the, the Holy Spirit's always with us. But scripture says that we should be filled with the Spirit. Yes, it does. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Spirit comes and goes. Uh, I heard someone illustrate it like this, that, that th- say you want your house to be painted white. And you invite a painter into your home. The painter's there, but he doesn't have, have access to every single room. And so we go and we, we open the door to the rooms. We give them access. We, we lay down the walls of rebellion. We ask and, and say, help me here. Um, there's different rooms you're going to work in and through. See, sanctification is not a microwave. We don't pop it in. It's not a hot pocket. right? We don't pop it in, put it on two minutes, and we get a tasty meal. It's a slow cooker. Okay, It's Thanksgiving meal. It takes a while. It's, it's long. There's a process. And so the Holy Spirit fills us, and we ask the Holy Spirit, fill us work in us, change us. We want to be changed. I don't want to be the same man I was last year. I want to grow. I want to know more of God. I want, to, I want people to see that, that I'm one of his, that there's something different about me. And that's how it is as we experience the presence of God with us. See, this was essential for these disciples. We know that Peter went on to write in 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves, right, he, he's writing an epistle, he's writing a letter to the church here, and this is what he says. You're like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He writes, or do you not know that your body is a temple? So, hey, we are the temple. We are the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Once again, we looked at this last week, but the Holy Spirit's a gift. It's a gift. We've been given a gift from God. So we have the Spirit living within us. So Jesus says, I will show you my love for you by being with you. I'm going to be with you. That is the promise to all who are believers. If you're not a Christian, I urge you, secure that by faith in Christ today. And then what does that mean for us, right? What do we do? We get to model that love for others. We forgive as we've been forgiven. We show mercy as we've been shown mercy. Hey, there's gonna be a lot of people in your life that don't deserve forgiveness. But guess what? Our job is to show them the love of Christ in us and model that for them. Hey, listen, I'm gonna forgive you. There might be some boundaries, but I'm gonna tell you that Hey, listen, I'm going to forgive you because I've been forgiven for so much that I do not deserve. And so we get this opportunity as God's people to live in a way that models the love of God for us to the world around us. Man, that's encouraging. Four, Jesus promises to provide peace. He promises to provide peace here in verses 27 through 29. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Now listen, here's the bad news. Humanity is at war with God. And this is a war that humanity cannot win. You cannot win the war against God. It doesn't matter what strategy you try. It doesn't matter what philosophy you grab hold to. It doesn't matter how many good works that you do. None of it can appease the wrath of God on humanity apart from Jesus Christ. You're at war. Romans 1 says we're at enmity with God. We're, We're at war. We're born into this world as rebels at war with the Creator. But here's the good news. Jesus provides a peace treaty. See, Jesus Christ is the only one that could appease the wrath of God. He's the only one that could absorb the righteous punishment that humanity deserves. He's the only one that could stand in our place and make perfect atonement, sacrifice for our sins. He lives a perfect life that we could never live. Okay. So, so guess what? You get righteousness that you didn't deserve. He, he, he lived for you and then he dies for you. So guess what? That means that what? Because he lives, we live. We're promised eternity. Notice he says here, right? This is the peace that only he can give. It's not what the world can give. You ever try to find peace in this world? It might be there for a moment, but man, it doesn't last long. It does not last long. And I just wanna notice here that Jesus doesn't promise health, wealth, and prosperity. He promises peace. He says, there's gonna be peace. There's gonna be a hostile world. We'll, We'll see that here in the next couple of chapters. He's going to say, "I don't want you to take them out of the world. We we'll just protect them while they're in it." It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. He says, "I'm going to provide peace that the world cannot do." This is a reminder to me when I was studying this and just looking here that just Jesus is an honest God, isn't He? I mean, He promises what He provides. He doesn't promise us some mystical world out here that. Uh, euphoric uh, unity with all humanity. No, he says, I'm going to bring you a peace in the midst of the world. Something that only I can give. Because when you know you have peace with God, guess what? Nothing else matters. You can live in a way that is just untethered to the things of this world. He says, I'm going to fix this. Things in this world might get rough, but you can have everlasting peace because what? He says, I'm going to fix it, gonna solve it. This is why he says, if you love me, like if you understood, truly understood, then you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. Here, the Father is greater than I, Uh, Means more in terms of the roles of redemption, right? The the Father sent the Son, the Son accomplishes the work of redemption, and the Spirit applies the work of redemption. They have different functions in the role of redemption. The redemption here the Father sends the Son, He accomplishes, He obeys. The point is, is that Jesus accomplishes the peace needed for god's people to have peace and he does this by dying on the cross what's ahead hebrews 10 12, 14 the writer says in verse 12 but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins one and done single sacrifice he sat down at the right hand of god Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, Christians. So, Christian, he has paid the price. It is done, it is finished. What a promise! Friend, is your conscience conflicted? I mean, do you do you feel the weight of the world? Is there turmoil in your soul? Is your mind unable to rest? There's two categories of people in here. There are those that are believers. And so my encouragement to you is to cling to these promises, to trust that Jesus is with you. To those that may not be believers, that turmoil will never cease without faith in Jesus Christ. Submission to him. Allowing him to to lead, guide, obeying him. Trusting in Jesus and submission. Trust in Christ today. Trust in Christ today. Finally, we see this fifth promise here. And he promises the world will know his power. Verse 30, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming. Essentially what he's saying here is, his time is coming. He's saying my time, my my time to die is coming. I'm I'm headed to the cross. He speaks of his impeding death here. He's on the way. He's going to die. Now I want you to notice here that he doesn't say that Judas is, is bringing the Romans. He doesn't say like, the, the people are, they're about to come get me. He, he credits their work to who? To Satan. To the ruler of this world. See, Satan is the one who rules the hearts of the wicked, of unbelievers, of those in the world. Uh, John writes in his epistle in 1 John, he says in 519, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the, the world is under the sway, the influence of the devil. And this is important for us as Christians to remember as we deal with non believers. See, our battle is not necessarily with them, our battle is spiritual, our battle is, is against the one whom they have pledged allegiance to. We want to see them come to a saving knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We evangelize and we pray for them. And we model lives that show that that we too were were once lost, but now we are found. And we live different. As we deal with wicked men who do wicked things, we must remember they are under the control of Satan. Satan. They follow the way of their father. Their hearts are hardened to God. And even for them, right, our first line of defense is prayer. You must remember that. But what does Jesus say here? Look at verse the end of 30. He has no claim on me. And then in 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Then he concludes this part and says, rise, let us go from here. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying Satan is not calling the shots here. Satan's not saying what happens. He's not moving the pieces and and winning the game, although it might seem that way. He says, this is God's plan. Everything that's happened up to this point has has brought this to fruition in the way that God has orchestrated. I mean, we see the sovereign hand of God at work. And why? There's a reason for this. He says, so the world may know that I love my father. May know that I am God may know that the Father and I are one. And then for application purposes, as he's instructed his disciples over and over again with this love and obedience mantra, what does he say? I love my Father, so I'm going to obey my Father. I'm obeying him. See, the world's... The disciples in the moment of crucifixion, they think Satan got him, like it's over. See, the resurrected Christ says otherwise. The resurrected Christ says, it is not over. And Paul wrote to the Philippians, he says in 2, 5 through 10, is is this applied to him practically in his life, in what he did? He tells them, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, may we model the obedience of our Savior. May we rest on these promises that are packed in this passage and and live lives that are confident. I don't know what everyone is dealing with personally, but I I just want to say whatever trial and tribulation you are going through, if you are a Christian, you are never alone. He is with you, friend. He is there with you right in the middle. At the end of this passage, it says, rise, let us go from here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Uh, There's two kind of interpretations here. One is that They just, it's like, hey, we're about to move on. We're going to move to another location. We're going to make our way from this place. Another, uh, other interpretations uh, would say this is more of a a militant phrase. That that he's saying, let's go attack the enemy. Like, the enemy's there, and we're going to approach. Rise, let us go. It was a military phrase. I prefer that one. Um, That's just how I am, right? Like, I, I prefer to think that that's what Jesus was saying. Like the battle is there, Calvary's ahead, let us go. We have nothing to fear. So that's what I want to leave us with today. Friends, we have nothing to fear. Our eternal security is sealed. We will see the risen Christ. If you're a Christian, that is your confidence today. Let that put some steel in your spine as you face the world around you, not as hostile and with animosity to the world, but understanding that they are under the sway of the devil, and our job is to pray, evangelize, proclaim the truths of Scripture, and live lives that model the gospel that we say we believe. So may we do that. May we be a church here in Lynchburg, Virginia that models this type of assurance, the presence of our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy, your kindness, uh, that you have given us assurance that is far beyond anything that we could ever find in this world. Lord, I know that there are people in this gathering this morning that are struggling with all sorts of struggles. And God, would they find comfort in the promise found here in your word? They are never alone. They are never alone, God, if they are truly yours. I pray for those that may not know you, that may be far from you, may be rebelling against you, God. Would you soften their hearts? May today be the day of salvation. Help them. Extend your hand of mercy. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.